This is the Ambition for Aging podcast, episode 5. What do we know about how inequality drives social isolation? period, a rich person's chance, the richest fifth of the population's chance of socially becoming socially excluded is only a fifth of that of the poorer um, fifth of the population. Hi, I'm Kirsty, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Ambition for Aging podcast. That was James Nasru, one of our guests for this episode, talking about our topic for today. What do we know about how inequality drives social isolation? This is the first episode of a two-parter looking at this topic. Inequalities come up time and time again when we're looking at the causes of social isolation. And we only need to look at how the early impact of COVID-19 replicated existing health inequalities and, in some cases, increased them to see that there are vast differences in the way that we experience life changes based on our advantages or disadvantages in life. When it comes to social isolation, we know that an individual's characteristics, such as gender, ethnicity and sexuality, play a huge part in their experiences and risk levels. As highlighted by the Centre for Aging Better, as we get older, the steady accumulation of a lifetime of advantages or disadvantages, together with differences such as our ethnicity, where we live, our income, result in vastly unequal levels of health, wealth, happiness and security in later life. Within our own work at Ambition for Ageing, we've also looked at the barriers people may face in accessing community activities as a result of a lifetime of inequality. Within this episode, we take both a practical and an academic approach to the subject, featuring interviews with Professor James Nasru, an expert in ageing and inequalities, and we rejoin a conversation between Ambition for Ageing lead in Berry, Julie Bentley, and my colleague Sharon Summers. Sharon spoke to Julie, who worked on Ambition for Ageing in Berry, back in episode three, about her working with communities to build capacity. In this episode, we follow up with her about how inequalities can have an impact on the opportunities people have to have their say in their local communities. Sharon spoke to her about this, and how an off-the-cuff suggestion led to a rainbow train to celebrate Pride. What issues did you face uh, when working with groups of marginalised people in Bury? I think there is um, building building up trust, um, building up understanding of of what we were trying to do. I think a lot of people, when we talked about microfunding, especially a lot of people from marginalised groups, were quite fearful of that that mm. somebody was coming in and giving them money. Okay. Um, so building up trust mm. and building up good relationships with people and and finding where where those groups are meeting mm. because mm. people are meeting and, and and working out how you can kind of work within their communities where you start off from where you where you build up the trust from and how you get to know people who are doing things and I think you also kind of mentioned when we were talking before about sometimes it's also about kind of working with volunteers and perhaps about their assumptions about kind of communities and groups. Very as well. much so. I think I think you know, and I think it's a, a national feeling given mainly by the press and mm. and how things are perceived about the fact that you know why why are we targeting my marginalized groups why why are we looking at marginalized groups because they have the same opportunities 
mm. all the way through the project as anyone else has to apply for funding or mm. to get involved and people are a little bit resentful sometimes of the mm. fact that a group's being targeted mm. and being given something that nobody else was just given. Mm. So actually managing those sort of assumptions and getting people to understand that that's but why yeah why are those marginalized groups not doing it so almost turning it on its head mm. and instead of having this this press driven i think feeling mm. of us and them being and, left and, out and yeah. us and them and, and they're being treated differently to us actually look at why why is that happening why doesn't that that marginalized group feel like they can do that because rightly it is there for everyone to apply for but why don't they and mm. it's finding that out and engaging with the communities but letting volunteers and people find that out as well mm. so bringing them in into contact with people but also putting it in the context of perhaps their their lives as well mm. so it sounds a bit like it's it's having that open dialogue and conversation in a kind of a supportive way to perhaps challenge mm -hmm. people's assumptions yeah. and to kind of talk through that that it isn't kind of just okay enough to say, well, then anyone can come yeah. or anyone can apply because actually for some communities and groups, it isn't a level playing field mm -hmm. um, because people do have additional yeah. barriers. Obviously, you've done kind of amazing work within Berry. Um, and can you tell us a bit about the work that's been done to engage the LGBT community? So one of the one of the focus groups that we we worked on as the marginalised groups was with the LGBT community, and we 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 did something slightly different. We 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 kind of followed a, a process of trying to engage with what was going on. When when we started Ambition for Aging, there was Berry Pride. Okay that I think then was in its second year and there was the LGBT employee group which was for employees of Berry Council. There was no age definition on that and obviously mm. Berry Pride didn't. But when we started talking to people, people didn't know Berry Pride existed locally or and if people did um, were very much of the assumption that it was for younger people. Right. Very Pride started with a rainbow walk, which a uh, the younger it was a, it was very much younger people driven. Um, so what we tried to do was we initially had a meeting about what people wanted. Mm. Um, did people want something different? Did they not? Who and who would be willing to support something if we were going to do it? I think one of the things we found out from that straight away was that people did want to do something, but they didn't necessarily want to have a social group. People mm. were quite happy to carry on with their lives and and do what they were doing. But what people wanted was was to have somewhere where they were accepted, where it was safe, where they had a voice. And the obvious link was to link something with Berry Pride. What we what we did then, we had an awareness event and opened up to lots of um, organisations, services, etc. With with the idea being that we would get people to come and actually find out what was available. Okay. And if they had got 
different issues with things to be able to talk to them and I think two things came from the meeting which were that the the phrase of we treat everyone the same didn't work for right. people people felt that there is a, and, and rightly so there is a huge difference between we treat everyone the same and we treat everyone as an individual and people felt that the same mm. was well we treat you the same as we treat everyone else and we have this standard list of questions for the for the majority population sure. who are heterosexual mm. so we ask everybody the same question those questions may not be suitable to somebody who's looking for a carer mm. or may have different needs so that was one of the things that came up which led to the pride in caring event where they offered workshops for carers, people who were being cared for, people who were interested, LGBT people, to find out actually how to deal with all this. And it was a great platform for things going on in Bury and also for people to see that the foundation already the LGBT foundation already had things in place. Right. That could be almost used as an additional yeah. resource and you a know, kind of and, a support and, a and help. people just don't know about them in a lot of cases. So there was that element to it. So the other thing that came from the meeting was we had a, a conversation about how people could get involved with Berry Pride, mm -hmm. um, where there was a sense of, yes, people really wanted to get involved with it, but they didn't <coughs> for many reasons. Um, and we had an older gentleman who suggested we had a gay train. Okay. And people in the room loved it, thought it was great, nobody was offended it was very much you know a fun idea for right. people to do from that meeting that that idea kind of shelved itself a little bit because right. i think you know there was very much a not exactly realistic great idea yeah that we've got this fantastic east Lanks railway and very great idea but not sure that fits any outcome any anything and who's going to do it um but from the back of that, they developed an LGBT forum. So people then started to take on different roles within that, of supporting different things that were going on and getting involved in different days and, and raising awareness and a higher profile. And the train came up again and, and was renamed the Rainbow Train. And at that point, there was groups of people who were quite committed to doing something with it so we had volunteers who went to the railway to book the train and and then we had the train on the Sunday of Berry Pride so it's made Berry Pride bigger but it's made it very acceptable to older people as well and some people didn't come on the Saturday and did come on the Sunday some people just because they now knew about it came both days right so it's opened up a whole awareness of something train was very open anybody could go on the train sure so it it's brought a lot of people together through understanding those barriers and also looking at a marginalized group and how how they can be affected by things why do you think targeted equalities work is important I think simply because it makes sure everyone's involved and 
going with this, you know, it's all inclusive, everyone's involved. Mm. They're not if they're if they're not actively mm. being included. And I think it's about making sure that everyone feels as included as anyone else. I think it's very easy to for people to get involved with something and then say, well, why are they not? Well, maybe because they can see that the group is predominantly mm. white British, mm. so they're not mm. getting involved because there's an assumption. So I think actually actively involving people. And, and that's definitely come out of the work of Ambition for Aging, that in addition to doing um, an, a general approach, you also need a targeted approach Very because much. otherwise you can uh, exacerbate and kind of mm-hmm. highlight kind of isolation if you yeah. don't target do targeted work and you can to marginalise communities a and larger groups. barrier mm. between them as well because mm. there's a focus on one and not on another and I think you can break that down mm. by making sure you're targeting everybody in the community. I love the idea of a rainbow train chugging its way through Berry. What a brilliant idea. Hearing Julie talk about how a large part of her role is helping community members understand why others get extra support is something that will chime with many people working in local communities. Breaking down those complicated topics like structural inequalities into easy to understand conversations is no easy feat, especially when we're working with people who maybe haven't had these kind of thoughts and ideas presented to them before. It's something that we've seen a lot from our community workers where there's a need to be highly skilled in working with communities to navigate the complexities of these conversations and often gently challenge preconceived ideas. The fact that not everyone is involved if you don't actively include them is an important thing to note when carrying out any kind of activity, but particularly community activity work. It simply isn't enough, as Julie said, to just say that everybody had the same opportunity to get involved as anybody else. People's journeys leading to that same place will differ, and with many facing more difficult barriers to others, to treat everybody the same is going to ignore these barriers. It was these barriers and their impact on lifetime opportunities that I spoke to my next guest about. Professor James Nasru is Professor of Sociology at the University of Manchester and has been the Director of the Cathy Marsh Centre for Census and Survey Research since April 2010. His interest in sociology began while he was studying medicine at St George's Hospital Medical School in the early 1980s, when he became aware of a range of sociological inquiries into health and the health professions that problematised much of what we take for granted, such as inequalities in health. Before coming to Manchester, James had a number of research fellow positions where he worked on topics ranging from gender inequalities and marital violence to ethnic inequalities in health. He was also a contributor to the Marmot Review into Health Inequalities, which is still used in policy today. I spoke to James about the impact of inequality on people as they age, and he shared some of the stark health outcomes that are connected to these inequalities. So inequalities are a crucial shaper of almost everything that older people experience as they grow older. Almost everything, not everything, but almost everything as as they grow older. Most strikingly you can see it in terms of health outcomes, uh, with the difference between richer and poorer people in, in relation to health being very, very large. So if you take just something like the top fifth of the population in terms of uh, wealth, compared with the bottom fifth of the population in terms of wealth, on in terms of their health, on average, there's a 15-year gap between wow. the two. So a 75-year-old person in the richest fifth has a similar kind of health to a 60-year-old in the poorest fifth. 
just say that again, these, these are fifths of the population, so these aren't extremely rich or extremely poor people. It's, it's, that's a very large amount of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it covers a significant proportion in terms of the comparison, uh, not extremes in terms of the comparison, and shows a dramatic difference. Uh, and you see the same in terms of life expectancy, so it's not just in terms of experienced health, but also when people die. And there is close to a two-fold difference in the chance of dying between the richest fifth compared with the poorest fifth after you've taken account of a whole range of other risk factors. So your research does focus a lot on that socioeconomic differences and ethnicity as well. Um, could we talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we see striking differences in terms of uh, levels of poor health amongst ethnic minority people uh, compared to the ethnic majority, white people. Uh, and again, it's huge orders of magnitude in terms of um, comparing people's health at, uh, at different ages. Uh, and these differences grow as people get older. So it's not a static difference that is present across the life course, but a growing difference that becomes huge uh, when, once people get into their 60s uh, and 70s. And it's not just health that matters, of course, to older people. A whole set of other things matter. And these inequalities shape a whole set of, of other things as well. So it shapes um, uh, their engagement in a whole set of uh, areas of life that they think are important, their social connections, uh, their engagement in cultural activities, their engagement in social activities. It affects things like the stuff that connects them uh, to the rest of the world. So their digital connection, for example, uh, varies dramatically across different uh, wealth groups, over and above the differences in relation to age, and continues across generations. So as digital um, connectivity increases, it increases at no greater rate for poorer people than richer people, which means that the gap stays the same. What mechanisms are in play there that cause these stark differences? Yeah. So, so the inequalities in relation to socioeconomic position are, are driven by a, by a whole range of tightly interrelated factors. So you can think about the ways in which they shape the housing that you uh, live in, how they shape the area that you live in, how they shape your access to certain important uh, goods that enable you to do stuff. A computer might be one, or a smartphone might be another, or a car might be another, or easy access to transport, other forms of transport might be another. They also shape the way in which you perceive yourself in society, and so we know that richer people perceive themselves as higher up in society than poorer people and poorer people see themselves as lower down in society. And that perception of yourself and your standing in the world then shapes the things you do and shapes your health. Yeah. So it shapes your access to cultural activities, but it also shapes, shapes your health. So there's a whole set of mechanisms uh, that, are, that, that are important there. Uh, and these are all present for ethnic minority people as well, of course. So the socioeconomic dis disadvantage is a driver for the experiences of ethnic minority people. But for ethnic minority people, we also have to think about discrimination, prejudice and racism and the ways in which that shapes their life's chances. So how it shapes their access to um, socioeconomic goods, uh, but also how that impacts directly on them. Uh, and there is a suggestion that for older ethnic minority people, the disadvantage that they've experienced has just accumulated across their life course, leading to widening inequalities as they get into, into later life.
Yeah, and the, the research that we've done as part of Ambition for Aging looks at looks at some of those marginalising characteristics that goes, you know, onto LGBT older people or pe older people with disabilities. It's kind of mirrors a lot of the stuff around um, socioeconomic status and ethnicity as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there are many dimensions of uh, of inequality that are operating in our society, of course. And um, you know some of the big ones that you've identified around disability, around sexuality, but also gender, of course, as well as socioeconomic position and um, race and ethnicity and others. Uh, in detail, of course, the ways in which these mechanisms operate are different for each of these dimensions of inequality and come together with people who have multiple dimensions of uh, inequality. Uh, so understanding that may require a different approach for different dimensions of inequality. But fundamentally, it really is about how people's position in society is challenged, uh, how they are made to feel uncomfortable in society uh, or in certain dimensions of society, whether that's because they haven't got enough money whether it's, or whether it's because their identity is wrong or perceived to be wrong. And these have an impact on social inclusion? So, so these have an impact on a whole range of uh, dimensions of our life, of, of course. Uh, and they can be many of them can be summarised within a notion of uh, social inclusion. So whether it's access to uh, the cinema, or whether it's access to a social network, or whether it's access to uh, good um, uh, shopping facilities, or whether it's access to the digital world, they are all things that can be jointly summarised in terms of a, a notion of social inclusion. Yeah. And you've done a lot of work around social exclusion. Yeah. Um, so why do you choose to focus on social exclusion rather than social inclusion and how do they differ for you? Yeah, so, so that, that is a very interesting question and it's a, I guess it's a question you're asking of someone who does empirical research. Yeah. Uh, and so the way in which we do our empirical research is in part shaped by the kinds of data we collect. So the kinds of data that we would use or that I would use, say, can you get to a cinema? Um, do you go to the museum or art gallery? Uh, can you get to your GP, can you get to a post office? And then it becomes very much a binary of yes-no, which then it becomes a measure of social exclusion. You cannot do certain types of things. Uh, and that does reveal dimensions of inequality very, very clearly. Uh, and so we show, um, for example, that over a two-year period, uh, a rich person's chance, the richest fifth of the population's chance of socially becoming socially excluded is only a fifth of that of the poorer um, fifth of the population. So that shows you, so, so it does become a very powerful tool to illustrate over time how these inequality dynam dynamics in, impact on social exclusion. How does it relate to social inclusion? I would argue that these are kind of polar ends of the same uh, concept. And so in, in, a, in a policy world, it's very important to think about, I think it's very important to think about social inclu inclusion. And I think that for, for two reasons. So I've told you I do social exclusion because that's the way our data come. But for a policy point of view, you want to think about what you can do to get people socially included. And then you want to think about social inclusion as a continuum. Uh, so some people are able to engage with more things than other people. And then it becomes not a binary, can I get to it or not? It becomes how much of that good can I have? And that links in with social isolation as well for those who are unable to be socially included. 
Yeah, I mean, social isolation is a complex topic, of course, because social isolation, in a, in a sense, captures someone's environment and not the causes of that uh, environment. So their lack of connectivity to an environment and not the causes of that. So we need to think about the causes of social isolation uh, in much the way as we might want to think about the causes of social inclusion or social exclusion. Some people, uh, not many, but some people of course choose um, to be less engaged than others and so we need to take that into account as well. Which is why I also like the concept of loneliness, um, uh, which is a subjective uh, lack of well-being in effect, uh, which might be driven by um, uh, social isolation, but it also might be driven by other things, of course. Um, uh, so some connected people, of course, feel um, lonely. Yeah. And do you think, because it's quite a, almost a steer towards looking at loneliness amongst older people, you know, it's in the news a lot, and is there something in that? Like, why, why do we focus so much on loneliness? Yeah, so lo loneliness is a, is a, is a very good way of getting people motivated. Talking about loneliness is a very good way of getting people motivated in any dimension of life. But if you think about the lonely older person, uh, then that is something that uh, I think broadly we will agree is not something that should be happening in our society, that people should be connected. They should not uh, feel lonely. So from that point of view, I think it's a very good thing uh, to, to think about. But we also need to think about, I guess, two difficulties with the idea of talking about loneliness and particularly in relation to older people. And one thing is that older people are not becoming more lonely. In yeah. fact, the opposite is happening. Uh, and so if we place our emphasis on loneliness and on loneliness as something that we want to address, then we can all feel pretty confident that it's being addressed already. And why bother, bother about all the other dimensions of inequality that are, are important? And so my emphasis has been primarily on other dimensions of inequality that I think are crucially important. Uh, and if we think about ultimate outcomes in terms of well-being and so on, then those other dimensions alongside loneliness are very, very important. So how happy someone is, how, how, how well they feel they're developing, uh, how good they feel about, how satisfied they feel about their lives and, and so on. Those things are, are, are really very important as well. And then the, the second problem is that it's not clear from a conceptual or an empirical uh, way of thinking, whether loneliness really adds anything uh, to our understanding of the inequalities that people face. And importantly, loneliness doesn't explain more in terms of risk of uh, death than social isolation, for example. Speaking to James about this, with his wealth of knowledge on the topic, really brings home how differently we experience an ageing as a population not only in the striking differences that grow larger over time, but in how our perceptions of ourselves and our own status shapes our health and behaviour as we age. In the next episode of this podcast, we'll be talking to a number of older people who will be sharing their stories. We'll talk to them about how it is growing older and the impact inequality has had on them and their friends. Ambition for Aging is a Greater Manchester-wide cross-sector partnership aimed at creating more age-friendly places and empowering people to live fulfilling lives as they age. Ambition for Aging is part of Aging Better, a programme set up by the National Lottery Community Fund, the largest funder of community activity in the UK. Aging Better aims to develop creative ways for older people to be actively involved in their local communities, helping to combat social isolation and loneliness. 
Ambition Forging is led by Greater Manchester Centre for Voluntary Organisation, the voluntary, community and social enterprise sector support and development organisation covering the Greater Manchester City region. The theme tune for this podcast is Air by Ilya Trivanov and any indents this season are taken from his track Tide. Both are used under a Creative Commons licence from his album Fugue. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about Ambition Forging and the work we do, visit ambitionforaging.org.uk.